when you went to church in Philadelphia, you knew that Jesus was alive. Philadelphia was the kind of church where people liked to go. You had to look for a parking space in Philadelphia. Had a hard time getting through the halls. Because in Philadelphia, they were missionary-minded. They were evangelistic in their outreach and in their scope. And I believe if Jesus had tried to choose a church to go to, he would have chosen the church at Philadelphia. In fact, when he writes this church, there is nothing that he writes to this church that is not an outgrowth of uninhibited praise. These folks were faithful. They were Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I mean, the men even tried to join GAs and RAs and everything. I mean, these folks loved to go to church. They just loved the Lord and loved being a part of what God was doing. That's the kind of church that Philadelphia was. It's not like a lot of churches that you run into these days. I remember uh, I get about 100 church bulletins uh, every week, and I read through them. And the funniest thing about church bulletins is a pastor's column. They're always funny. Most pastors spend time telling you how great the day, last day was. And uh, they do funny things in pastor's columns. And I remember reading one, and I thought about this uh, Friday night when I thought that we were having a reenactment of the flood and was wondering if we'd budgeted for the ark. Uh, I remember reading this article where this pastor wrote, I want to thank those of you who braved the rain to come to church. And I thought, boy, that must have been a big rain. And then I got my sanctified imagination and let it run wild on me a little bit. And I thought, you know, here's this little Baptist family. They've got their shoes polished and they've got all the kids' clothes laid out and they're ready to go to church and they've got their offering envelopes and the kids have put a nickel in it and they've checked all the boxes and everything's ready. And just about the crack of light, mom and dad are sound asleep. You know, they're just in that deepest level of sleep because this is the only day they get to sleep a little later. And the little boy comes bursting into the room and says, Mom, Dad, it's raining outside. And Mom and Dad barely peek their heads out from the covers, and they look over at each other, and the other children come rushing in the room, and they all get under the covers, and they're there just a shaking. And Dad goes to the curtain, and he pulls the curtain back, and he looks back at his little scared family and says, Family, what we have feared has befallen us. It's raining. So they decide they'll skip breakfast that day and fast and just ask the Lord if he would have them go to church that morning because after all, it's raining. And so they come together and they decide, you know, well, all those other pagans down at the church, they're not going to get wet because Baptists don't like to get wet, so we'll go and we'll show the preacher how much we love him and how much we support him. So they all get their raincoats and their galoshes and they get all their umbrellas together and they make the mad dash from the kitchen to the garage. They get in there safe so far and they back the car out, and they come and drive in under a covered driveway, and the family gets out, and then Dad goes out and risks his life to park the car 10 feet from the church because he's the only one there. And the pastor meets him at the door and says, I want to thank you for braving the rain to come to church. You know, I thought that ought to be in the book of Hebrews, right there with men sawed asunder, burned at the stake, men of whom the world were not worthy. Dads who drive their families to church in the rain. That's about the level of most people's commitment these days. They let the weather affect them. They let a lot of things affect them. The church at Philadelphia wasn't that kind of church. It was an incredible church, one that every church ought to try to model themselves after. If you've got your copy of the Scriptures, turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and I want us to read verses 7 through 13. Revelation chapter 3, 7 through 13. 
And once you've found that, would you stand, please, as I read those verses of Scripture? Revelation 3, 7 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, and who shuts, and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. The name Philadelphia means brotherly love or love for the brothers. It was referred to as a little Athens. It was located 28 miles southeast of Sardis. It was the center of a trade route that led from Europe all the way to the east, and it was built on a fault line. And consequently, the people had to flee the city quite often because of earthquakes and because of tremors, and they would leave. And yet, because of that fault line and because of volcanic activity in that area, there was a rich soil and rich fertile area to grow crops and grapes. The god, the main god of Philadelphia was the god of wine, Dionysus. It was an unusual city. It was one of the great cities, and yet the church in it was probably one of the greatest churches that ever existed. It was a church that caught the eye of Jesus. When he wrote to the large churches in the other cities, he didn't talk about them like he talked about this church in the city of Philadelphia. This church, this city was unique. It caught the eye of the Master. I want you to notice the correspondent, if you would, for he writes them and identifies himself in verse 7. He says, He who is holy and who is true. Moffat translates that, the true holy one. He is holy and he is true. That is the reflection of his attributes. The reflection of his attributes, that he is holy and that he is true. The word holy is hagios. It means to be set apart. It is used 275 times in Scripture. It means one that is separate, set apart from the rest. It is one who is righteous. His attribute is holiness, which is an attribute of deity. Jesus says, I am holy, I am deity, and you can stake your life on me because I am holy and I am true. He says the word true there, and that word is alethes in the Greek, and it means in and of himself he is true. He's the original. He's not a photocopy. He's not an image. He's not a reproduction. He is true. And the words holy and true are really two sides to the same fact. For holiness is what Jesus is as a part of his character. His character is holiness. His conduct is true. It is the inward manifestation which is holy. It is the outward manifestation which is true. In his attributes, he is holy. 
In his actions, he is true. In his character, he is holy. In his conduct, he is true. He identifies himself as the one who is holy and true. And anything or anyone who teaches that Jesus is anything other than holy and true is an error. Then he goes on to say that there is a removal of judgment, for he talks about the one who has the key of David. The key of David. This is a metaphor that indicates complete control over a royal household. He has the key of David. He has all authority and all power. It is a reference, a quote, from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. Jesus identifies himself as holy and true and having all authority. He identifies himself as the sovereign one. Now notice a little phrase that he uses in verse 7 in the last half. He says, Who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. This is again a reference to his sovereignty and his removal of judgment. He has opened the door. Now there are several doors that he's opened. He's opened the door of opportunity for ministry. He's opened the door of service. He has opened the door of salvation. For as long as that door is open, men can be saved. And notice, if you would, what, how he uses these words. This word, he who opens, is a present active participle. Something that is going on right now. And no one shuts. The shuts is future tense. Jesus says, what I have opened and is open will stay open and nobody in the future is going to shut it. Unless, then he follows and says, and who shuts, present active participle, and no one opens, future. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I'm in control of every situation. And when I open a door, no one, nothing can shut that door. And when I shut a door, no one and nothing can open it unless I do it. I hold the keys to the door, and you can't go to a locksmith and get this one open. You can't change this one. I have the keys to the door, and if they're open, it's because I've opened them. God has given us open doors of opportunity. Paul talked often about the open doors for the Word and the open doors that the Lord had given him. And several times in Paul's writing, he talks about open doors. One in particular is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, A door was opened for me in the Lord. Phillips translates this little phrase, a door flung wide open. It is literally translated, I will give you a door which I myself have opened. We live in a land with some open doors, and we see more and more open doors around us. For we see in Eastern Europe and in Russia and in countries in Central and South America that there are opening doors, and we think sometimes, well, that's just an open door for democracy. Friend, that's an open door for the gospel. That's why it's open. And we need to realize that just as quickly as those doors have opened, that with the least political change, they could shut. And when there are appeals made that we send missionaries and send men and women out and try to touch those places with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to realize that the doors will not always be open. I wonder if we as Southern Baptists would have done anything differently had we known that when prayer was taken out of the schools in 63, what would be the end result? I wonder if we would have taken more seriously our open door. I wonder if those seasons when God allows us to have freedom and then we realize how quickly those freedoms can be snatched from us if we would do anything different. General Douglas MacArthur at the end of World War II made this statement. He said, if you'll send 5,000 missionaries to Japan 
And if you'll send another 5,000 to Korea and Vietnam and Cambodia and into China, there will never be war in the third world again. You know what we've had in the third world since 1945? War. Do you know why some of you have lost loved ones and why they're laying in the graves in this town, men who died in Korea and men who died in Vietnam? It's because churches said, oh, MacArthur doesn't know what he's talking about. Man, we won the war. Everything's great. Everything's glorious. And all we've known is war in those areas ever since then. And none of those areas except for Korea could be classified in any way as Christian. They are dominated by totalitarian governments. They are humanistic in their thinking. They are atheistic in their thinking. Less than 1% of Japan even believes in Christ. And yet if you and I would understand that the mentality of the Japanese people at the time of the war was, we will look to the God that America worships. But we weren't there to show them God. And so they found another one. God gives open doors. And most of the time when he gives an open door, the church asks the question, how much is it going to cost us? Brother Ron and I have talked on several occasions that in about eight years now, Hong Kong, the third richest city in the world, is going to be turned over to communist control. And you know what we are doing? The same thing we did 30 years ago. We're not sending any more missionaries. We're not trying to put any more copies of the Scripture in there. We're not doing anything. And eight years from now, God will hold us accountable that we didn't walk through an open door when He gave it to us. The door is shutting. Everybody knows it's shutting. And nobody is doing anything different. We're in a sad state of affairs because we haven't realized that when God opens a door, He expects His people to walk through it and He doesn't keep it open forever. God has opened a door of opportunity. And Jesus says, I'm the one that opens it. Now look, if you would, at the commendation. For Jesus is writing this church. They don't have a fortress mentality. This is a church that was living with a vision. They operated in perpetual revival. And he says four things about them. He says that they had a faithful witness, first of all. He says, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. I know that you've been given opportunities, you've been given ministries, you've had a door of evangelism and a door of missions, and you've walked through it. They have been faithful to take the ministry and the witness that God had given them. But not only that, he says, they are a faithful remnant because you have a little power. This church was not a large church. They were not a well-off church financially. But this church had a little power. And Jesus said, your little power... As uh, Philip says in his commentary on Revelation, he says it is mixing man's feebleness with God's faithfulness. That's what it's all about, that, that our little power we make available to Jesus Christ, and thus he takes that and adds his faithfulness and makes us a people that can be used by him. God always uses the remnant. And he says there is a faithful remnant, those that are faithful to do what I have told them to do. Then thirdly, he says they were faithful in their doctrine. Notice it says, they have kept my word. Kept my word. Faithful in their doctrine. They were loyal to the word. They didn't believe that the miracles could be explained away. They didn't believe that the virgin birth could be explained away. They didn't believe that the first 11 chapters of Genesis could be defined in some other way. They didn't believe that the resurrection could be explained. They believed it the way God said it. And they stuck with it. They were faithful in their doctrine. Now, if there's a little phrase that you ought to write by that term, have kept my word, it would be this. It's two words. Biblical fidelity. Biblical fidelity. They kept the word. Satan tried to get them to corrupt it, 
and to neglect it and to ignore it and to subtract from it and to debate it and argue about it, but they kept the Word. We are only as strong as we are submitted to the Word of God. Not only were they faithful in doctrine, but they were faithful in perseverance. For he says, they have not denied my name. Not only were they loyal to the Word, they were loyal to Christ. They have not denied my name. In the face of opposition, they saw opportunities. These people understood what perseverance was all about. They didn't deny the name of Christ. The song that the choir sang earlier, the reference to the name of Christ, they didn't deny Him. They were not embarrassed to be called Christians. They were not embarrassed to stand for the cause of Christ. Now, folks, let me give you two criteria. We have a lot of people who visit us. We're averaging about 80 or 90 visitors every Sunday here. We have a lot of people who watch us by television. A lot of people who get tapes and do other things. Let me tell you the two criteria for a church. And if whatever church you happen to belong to doesn't match up to these two criteria, you better get out before the service is over. One is faithfulness to the Word. And two is obedience to His name. Now I'm going to tell you, I would, not, I would rather put my children in a room full of poisonous snakes and let them take their chances than to put them in a church that's not faithful to the Word of God and think they're going to grow up and be godly. They won't do it. One of the reasons why there are so many prodigals today is because we've raised them in churches that didn't teach the Word because we thought we had to stay in that church because mama and grandma and great-grandma were in that church and folks, no one owes allegiance to a church for what it used to be. Nobody. You are doing your children no favor to raise them in a church that does not teach them that Jesus was who He said He was, He did what He said He did, and He's resurrected, and that we will be obedient to Christ. My friend, I would get my family out of that church before they're poisoned and corrupted by Satan himself. And I think that when you're looking for a church, if you're living here or moving somewhere else, you better ask some tough questions, and you better find out, are they faithful to the Word of God and just because they've got Baptists on their door or Methodists on their door or anything else doesn't mean they're faithful to the Word of God. You better find out if they're faithful to the Word of God and you better find out if they're ashamed to be called by the name of Jesus Christ. Because if they are, I wouldn't get close to them. You see, you've got to learn to, that, that the Lord looked down at this church and He was visiting this church and He dropped in His visitor's card and He made His observations and He said, I like those folks. They've kept my word and they've not denied my name. And because they had been faithful in their witness and faithful as a remnant and faithful in their doctrine and faithful in their perseverance, God makes two promises to them. Number one is found in verse 9. He says, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet. The first promises He makes is that He will take care of our enemies. He will take care of our enemies. Now, the people He's referring to were those of the synagogue of Satan. They are mentioned four times in four of the seven letters to the church of Revelation. The synagogue of Satan, who said they are Jews and they are not, is referred to as Satan's throne or Satan's seat, but it's mentioned four times. But here at the church in Philadelphia, he says, I'm going to give you victory over them, and they are going to come and bow down and pay homage at your feet and know that I have loved you. He was referring to the Judaizers. They were the ones that Paul wrote to in the book of Galatians 
The Judaizers were the ones who wanted to add something to the deity of Christ. They wanted to add something to the person of Christ. They couldn't accept that life in Christ was by grace, and so they wanted to add the law and obligations and circumcision and all these other things. They wanted to add ritual and observances and traditions. And Jesus said that the Judaizers were of the synagogue of Satan. Now, if you'd asked them, they would have said that they were upholding the faith. They would have said they were staying true to their heritage. I'll take what the Lord said about them. The Lord said they were the synagogue of Satan. Now, they wouldn't have said that. But then I kind of like what Dr. Havner said. He said, you know, you throw a rock at a group of dogs and the only one that yells is the one that gets hit. Now, you go out here this afternoon and you find you about five dogs, stray dogs running around somewhere and you pick up a rock and throw it at them and no dog's going to yell except the one you hit. Jesus hit them with a rock. And he said, you're the synagogue of Satan. And I just want you to know, and see, these people were inside the church. They were inside the church. And Jesus said, I just want you to know, you're going to hear it with your ears, and one day you're going to see it. That there's going to come a day when those of you who are trying to add to me are going to bow down at the feet of those who have worshipped me and me alone. And you're going to know then that the ones that I loved were the ones who were faithful, who kept my word, and who did not deny my name. Listen, folks, the greatest friend of truth is time. The greatest friend of truth is time. If you want to know if something is true, just stand back and watch it over the long haul. The greatest friend of truth is time. He says he will take care of his enemies, and then secondly, he will keep them. Now, he uses this little twist uh, in verse 10. He says, because you have, I will. What's he going to do? He says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing. Now, that little phrase, keep you from, does not mean that you will persevere through. It means that you will persevere outside of. It is a reference to the church being gone at the great tribulation. He talks about the hour of testing in verse 10, that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the church is on the earth. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, the church has been taken to heaven. And in Revelation chapter 6, there is tribulation on the earth. Jesus says that the church, my true church, the people who love me, the people who are faithful to me, the people that I have loved and the people that have loved me, because they have, I will take them with me and they'll never go through the tribulation. That's what he's promising them. That they would not go through that massive worldwide tribulation. And you see, we don't understand what tribulation is going to be like. In fact, historians tell us that more people have been martyred for the Christian faith in the 20th century than all other centuries combined. More people have died for the cause of Christ in the last 90 years than have died in all the other years combined. That tells me that we don't understand what tribulation is going to be about. We think it's just intensified persecution. Jesus didn't say it was intensified persecution. He said it was tribulation. That there was going to be worldwide tribulation, but the church was going to be out of it. One of the things you know, that if you're kind of church that Jesus wants you to be, you don't have to worry about the tribulation. But it ought to make you worry about the people who are going to be here in the tribulation enough to go share the gospel with them and try to get them out of the tribulation. The reason God kept us here was to go back into the world and get more people out of the world. It's exactly why he brought us together. He said, I will take care of your enemies and I will keep you. There are two keeps here. He said, they kept my word, I will keep them. 
They kept my word. I will keep them. And then he comes to the command in verse 11, the last part of verse 11, and he uses this little term, hold fast. Hold fast. And what are they supposed to hold fast to? Well, they're supposed to hold fast to the little power that they had. They're supposed to hold fast to the word and to his name and to the promise of his return. They were to hold fast. It is a military term. It implies that someone is trying to knock you off balance and somebody's trying to drive you back. And he says, you just hold on. He says, I'm coming quickly, so you hold fast. You see, it's the promise of a deliverer coming from the mother city. He said, I'm going to come and I'm going to deliver you. You are right now behind enemy lines and you are in enemy territory, but I'm going to come and I'm coming quickly and when I come, I will bring all my army with me and you hold fast because I'm going to be there. Don't give up. Don't run up the white flag. Don't surrender. Don't quit. Stay with it. Hold fast for I am coming. And then he gives the counsel in verse 12. He who overcomes, I will Make him a pillar. I will write upon him the name of my God. Now he gives a threefold identification. I got to thinking about this this morning uh, because he talks about the threefold identification as the name of my God, as the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, and as my new name. You know what the worst thing about moving to a place is? Is uh, trying to get all the information on your check so you don't have to pull your wallet out three times when you're getting it approved. I mean, you put your Social Security number on there, you put your driver's license number on there, you put your name of the first three dogs that you owned, you know, you put the color of your hair, the color of your eyes, and then, you know, you've written this check for $4.73, and they say, could I have three sources of, of uh, identification, please? And so, you, well, what do you want? Well, a driver's license, credit card, but it needs to be a major credit card. See, Jesus says, I'm going to give you an identification, and nobody's going to have to ask who you are. I'm going to give you an identification that's going to be marked on you, and you're going to have the name of my God. You're going to have the name of a new city, a permanent dwelling place, and you're going to have my new name. God identifies us in such a way when we get to glory that nobody has to ask if we're supposed to be there or not. He gives us a new identification, and he talks about two things. He talks about that pillar, which is a picture of stability and security and, and strength and solidarity. Here is a position, a pillar. And Jesus is saying to them, you are living in a community right now where you have to flee and you have to run because of earthquakes. But you're going to take up a residence with me in a new Jerusalem, in a pillar, and you're going to be a pillar and you'll never have to flee because there is a permanency about the residence in heaven. You don't have to worry about running. You don't have to worry about any more earthquakes. You don't have to worry about any more tremors. There is a permanency, no more fleeing. There will be no fleeing from the heavenly city. And then he says that they would go out no more. That was because they had security, because they were in his presence. And he says they had a new name. And that, that word new name is a qualitatively new name. It's a new name. It's a new recognition for them. Now, I'm going to give you a little homework to do. If you'll uh, just kind of mark it down so you can know to do it. There are ten prophecies or predictions in verses 9 through 12. Ten prophecies or predictions in verses 9 through 12. And if you'll study this passage this afternoon, you'll find that there are ten. ten. Six of them are present tense, and four of them are to be in the future. Most of the future ones are found in verse 12. It's kind of an open book test. So if you would study that, you will find that Jesus predicts and prophesies. And one of the things about his prophecies, they're always accurate. 
And it's not like Jean Dixon at the first of every year, and she predicts in such generalities that you can't figure it out, and half of them don't come true. And we say, oh, she's a prophetess, she's a prophetess. Hey, you know, I can predict anything 50% of the time. I can stand up here today and say, it's either going to rain or it's going to be sunny. Now, you're not going to call me a prophet. You're going to say, you just watch the weather. He says that there are promises for these people. Why? Because they held fast. They stayed true with the stuff. They did what God expected them to do. They were faithful in their witness. They were faithful in their following the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm going to give you a new name. He doesn't tell us what that new name is. We've got to wait to glory to find out what that is. But he gives us a new name. I'm concerned about the church in America. I'm concerned about where we are headed as a people, as believers. For I think that if you would listen very quietly and if you would observe the signs of the times, you would find that the door has not been oiled and that the Lord has left it that way because He is giving us so many signs and so many visible evidences that the door is about to be shut in America. And it is creaking slowly, slowly, slowly until it will be shut on us. You cannot look at the Supreme Court decisions over the last 20 years and come to any conclusion except that the government of this country is moving toward Antichrist. It is not moving toward Jesus. You cannot look at what's happened in public schools where juvenile delinquency is up 300% since the banning of prayer from public schools, you cannot look at the fact that we have aborted enough babies in this country to populate seven states in this union. You cannot look at the fact that every time you turn around in nice little peaceful communities like Albany, people are being murdered, people are being raped. You cannot look at all the situations that are going on. You cannot look at the humanism that surrounds us and come to but one conclusion. We are moving away from Philadelphia where the door is open and moving toward Laodicea where we make God sick. That is what is happening in our society. It happened in England. From the 1870s to the 1950s, England had the greatest proliferation of writers and Bible scholars that the world has ever known. There has never been a country. Germany has had at times a man like a Martin Luther. But there has never been a country, there has never been a place, there has never been a time like the time of the 1870s to the 1950s in England. It was an unusual place. It was an unusual time in the life of that country. They had great men like C.H. Spurgeon, who at the age of 19 preached to 10,000 people every Sunday. Every word that he said, there were six stenographers who sat in front of the pulpit and copied every word that came out of Spurgeon's mouth, and they sold the manuscripts of his messages on the newsstands with the city newspaper. Nobody like him has ever existed, the greatest preacher that ever lived. But right down the street from him were men like Alexander McLaren and F.B. Meyer and D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who just died a few years ago, There were Joseph Parker and G. Campbell Morgan who was called the Prince of Expositors. And even now, these men have been dead. Many of them have been dead 50 years. And even now, their books are available to us. Most books never outlive their author. When the author dies, the books, we lose interest in them. But their books are published by hundreds and hundreds. And yet, this great country with its great churches is dying spiritually. It is now classified as a pagan nation. Only 7% of the population of England 
goes to church. Only 3% of the population would be considered evangelical Christians. They are a pagan nation. In the 50s, after the war, they began to move towards socialism and materialism. And now in England, the gospel of Jesus Christ is void. And the only even sparks of hope in that country have been in the times when Dr. Graham has gone there and preached the gospel. And you have seen how people have responded to the gospel. They're hungry for it. They're not getting it in their pulpits. They're not getting it in their churches. The, the nation is void of any spiritual input. The door has closed. There's only a crack left for light for the door in England. And I would submit to you that in this country where 90% of all ordained ministers dwell within the borders of this country, where 85% of all mission money comes from, I will submit to you based on us having to beg and struggle and plead to give money for missions and on us having to beg and struggle for people to go overseas, I would say to you that I believe the door is closing in this country. Because even as late as this past week, two countries that we send missionaries to were approved to send missionaries to us. We are now, for the first time in our history, receiving missionaries. You know why? Because the people that we have been trying to reach and evangelize realize we're not even reaching and evangelizing in our own backyard. And they're coming to help us do what God told us to do. Folks, the door is closing. And if you and I do not see the signs of the times and understand that while the opportunity is there, we must take advantage of it. While the opportunity is there for us to go and to give, we must take advantage of it. For that is the kind of church that Jesus is looking for. And that's where Jesus would go to church. He would go to a church that would be faithful to His name, that would not deny His name, that would be faithful to His word. And He would go to a place where people are committed to the cause of Jesus Christ and committed to reaching out to other people. There may be a few, but that's all He's ever asked for, was those who had little power and could mix together their feebleness and His faithfulness. I'm concerned because the longer we go, churches like Sherwood become the exception, not the rule. That bothers me. It doesn't bother me for us except the fact that the people around us who are not taking advantage of the open door will keep putting pressure on us to become like them. We cannot do that. We must not do that. But it bothers me that we have done such a poor job in this country that now it has become acceptable for men to stand behind pulpits with no power, with no word, and who deny His name. And they do it in the name of the church of Jesus Christ. God help us and burn this place down if we ever get to that point. I'd rather Him shut our doors and wipe us off the face of the earth and for us to ever get to a point where we would deny His name and deny His Word. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed. I don't know what you're looking for today. I don't know what your desire is as far as a church. But I know this, this church desires 
to be a Philadelphia kind of a church. We don't want to be just a sunny day, every other Sunday kind of a church. We want to be a faithful church. That's where you ought to be raising your family. Dads, that's where you ought to be if you're going to try to be a spiritual leader. It's in a place that will demand and expect you to be such. That's where you ought to be if you want to be a godly young person or a godly single adult. Not somebody that would accommodate your flesh, but somebody that would challenge you to be all God requires. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, let me tell you this in all honesty. God has left a door open for you to walk through. You could come down these aisles, out of the balcony, out of the center of an aisle. You could come down these aisles this morning and you could take one of these staff members by the hand and tell them, I've never asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. I've never asked Him to save me. I don't know what it is to have forgiveness of sins. I've never followed the Lord and I need to do it. God has left an open door. It is not His will that any should perish. If you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, I would not try to scare you in any way, but I will tell you this. Should the Lord come quickly and that coming be today, you would be left to endure a great tribulation and to spend eternity separated from God. Every time you say no to God at an invitation, you are one step closer to the door being closed on your life. Don't do it. Don't play games with God. Don't try to bargain with Him. Don't put it off to another time. You come and respond to what God tells you to do. Some of you are church members. and God's been telling you to do something about your money. He's been telling you to do something about your schedule and your time. And you've not been faithful to His name. You've not been faithful to His word. You've not been obedient to what He's told you to do. And you need to come and respond. I'm going to pray. The choir's going to sing. Heads will be bowed and eyes will be closed. You come as God leads. Heavenly Father, down these aisles, whether to come and kneel and pray or to come and talk with a staff member and make a decision, I pray that you'd bring those that you desire to affiliate with the kingdom of God and with this church this morning. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.